Doctor Who Gazers, and welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the new podcast taking you through the world of the Target novelizations in publication order. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey, and welcome back to Season 2 of the program. Anchor likes to divide podcasts up into seasons, and since I recently finished the 1974 and 1975 books, and took a one-week break from the targets to talk about the death of Linda Barron, this is going to be Season 2, and we'll be covering now the 1976 and 1977 books. First up, from January 1976, will be Doctor Who and the Loch Ness Monster by Terence Dix, the novelization of Terror of the Zygons, the last story made in the Season 12 production block, and the first story aired as part of Season 13. We have several books to discuss across 1976 and 1977 for Season 2, and we will have guests for just about every episode, with a couple of surprises mixed in. So, without further ado, let's get to my interview with this week's guest, talking about Doctor Who and the Loch Ness Monster. I'm very happy now to welcome back to Doctor Who Literature for the second time. You heard him talk about the demons with me, and now he's here to discuss a fourth Doctor story. Please, everyone, welcome back for the second time, Mr. Simon Hart. Hello, Si. Hello, Jason. How are you? So I am about, as I've mentioned several times on this show before, I have a really bad podcast habit. And it's not just Doctor Who. I have all sorts of other podcasts that I follow and given the number of podcasts in my queue, I am right now listening to podcasts from six weeks ago. I am I am very behind schedule, and then one of my friends is trying to turn me on to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, and when he does an episode, it's six hours long. Then wow. a six-hour episode of that just dropped yesterday or the other day. So, in other words, when I listen to a podcast, it's already quite a bit out of date. But between having heard you in a cluster of episodes from January, because you've been on Hamster with a Blood Penknife, and you've been on Trap 1, and you've been on Gallifrey's Most Wanted, and then you and I recorded a Trap 1 uh, last week, I've been hearing a lot of you on my feed, and it's very entertaining because you are very lively. It doesn't matter what the topic is. You always come strong with an opinion. So what are some of the shows that you've been on recently, and what sort of topics have you discussed? And bearing in mind, I'm sure there's others in the last six weeks that I haven't heard yet. Right. Well, um, I think my recent Hamster with a Blunt Penknife appearances have been uh, The Pilot and Mordron Undead with the lovely Fraser and Joe as well, which was, was really good. I love Mordron Undead. I gave season 20 some love. I'm not listening to that Joe Ford and his opinions on that. <laughs> then I've, I've done various trap ones this year so far. So I did one on Eve of the Daleks. I was the host on that one. That's you right. Were, I yes, I was there than you. yes, that's right. <laughs> and, um, um, and the, only this last weekend, we, uh, me and Pete 
And Space Jason, as we're now calling him from um, Hamster with a Blunt Penknife, did a flashcast um, after we went to the BFI to see Revelation of the Daleks, which was good fun. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I saw photos of that on social media. Yeah. Not my favorite episode, but I'm sorry to miss any good screening like that. Yeah, it's not not one of my favorites, but there was something really good about watching it with an with a big group of fans and everyone laughing at the same moment. You sort of get swept along with the crowd, which was good. But yeah, it's a story that it's easy to admire, but I find it very very hard to love. It's funny that you mentioned though defending Modern Undead against Joe Ford because last year summer of 2021, I was on an episode of Joe's original podcast, The Nymon Be Praised. I should say that properly. The Nymon Be Praised! And I was defending all of season 20, and you probably heard us have a knockdown, drag-out fight over the King's Demons. Yes, oh god yes, I remember that very well. But Modron is one of the clear winners of that season, so it's hard yeah. to imagine anybody who would push back against Modron being a great story. Yeah, I think it was more a pushback against Peter Davison rather than the story itself. So, Marjorie was one of the cliffhangers that made me a fan of the show because I started watching with Time Flight and then I saw a little bit of Arc of Infinity, Missed Snake Dance. The part three cliffhanger to Marjorie did almost as much to make me a fan as any other cliffhanger. That and Enlightenment Part One, those two cliffhangers really hooked me into the show at 11 years old. Yeah, well, the, yeah, the end of um, part one of Enlightenment was one of those Doctor Who images that just buried itself in my head, um, sort of age eight and didn't let go. That's that's such a Doctor Who thing. Spaceships in, but they're sailing ships in space. It's just wonderful, wonderful stuff. So imaginative and brilliant. I was recently watching uh, the Russell T. Davies version of uh, Voyage of the Damned, not the World War II movie, but his version of it with Kylie Minogue. And I noticed that he steals the part one cliffhanger to enlightenment almost wholesale for his opening credits because the doctor's on Titanic and then he goes to the portal and it turns out he's in space. You can't tell me that is not an exact copy of enlightenment. I can say, yeah, that when you put it like that, it does sound very familiar suddenly. It's, not, it's one of those stupid things that never quite occurred to me. But yeah, of course it is. Yeah. Mm hmm. And speaking of newer stories echoing older stories, you and I, of course, had talked about Eve of the Daleks. And I remember I liked that episode quite a bit, more than I thought I would. I remember, and it wasn't you, but I heard other people online complain about the Daleks being funny in that episode. You know, Daleks do not store stuff, and I am not Nick. And, you know, my rewatch is now up to the end of... Series 4. It's taken me 18 months to get from Unearthly Child to right now I'm in the middle of Stolen Earth slash Journey's End. So when I watched Stolen Earth last night, I realized Russell T. Davis is making the Daleks funny. And they do the exact same thing in Stolen Earth that they do in Eve of the Daleks. They say Daleks do not, etc. twice. And then they make fun of Harriet Jones before they exterminate her. We know who you are. Yeah, oh yes, exactly. But because it's Russell T. Davis, it's acceptable. And because it's Chris Chibnall, it's not. <laughs> that's the way it, That's the way it works. People loved it in 2008, but if Chibnall is going to do it, they're going to complain no matter what. Yeah, I think that's, that's it. That's the key. So people forget the stuff that they love because, yeah, it's just amazing how much stuff that's been in the show in the past is still being used now or repurposed in the present. 
And if you like it five years ago but complain about it now, that doesn't necessarily make you a very good fan reviewer. Not really, no. Drawing those links is a much better way of doing it and pointing out that other showrunners have have made the Daleks funny. Is yeah, that's a that's a good thing. So I don't know. But fans just like to knock whatever's current and then two years down the line, once this era's over, there'll be a massive reappraisal and it won't be as nearly as bad as what what Russell T. Davis is currently um, showing on TV. This is what happens every time. Of course, of course. I, you know, did my fair bit of complaining about some of the excesses of Stephen Moffat, but having just finished Forest of the Dead, it is amazing how much of the entire arc of Moffat's time is described in that episode, and he accurately predicts the future. I'm curious now, as I'm on the cusp of the Moffat years, I am sure I'm going to enjoy the Moffat years a lot more the second time around, because I'll suddenly see all the links that didn't make any sense to me the first time. Yeah, I think that that's a, a big, big key to the era, that you suddenly notice things that become really important a lot later on. But because it's a lot later on that it becomes important, you've forgotten that it was important in the first place, or you didn't spot those links. So he, he's a very clever writer in that way. He describes Peter Capaldi to a T in Forest of the Dead, and Capaldi wouldn't even be cast for another five or six years. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, I know. It, it's uh, just superb, isn't it? And it's almost like he's thinking, well, okay, perhaps in five years, Peter Capaldi will be available. Okay, yeah, that would be fine. <laughs> Give him a smart <laughs> new suit. It'll be great. <laughs> That takes a lot of uh, chutzpah, as my people say. So yes. since, I, since I've heard you on so many podcasts being awesome, let me ask you the, the big question. When are you starting your own? Well, I have my Blake 7 one, which is sort of mine-ish, um, although it's sort of really the, the group. But I came up with the idea with, with Colin Neal on that one. So, um, yeah, maybe I should. Perhaps people will listen. I don't know. I just quite like guesting on everyone else's podcast. That's a lot easier than having to do all the work yourself, as you probably know now. Having uh, been on Trap 1 for five or six years, is easier to show up and talk than it is to write a script and try and corral three or four uh, other panelists. Exactly. I'm not very good at the organizational side, so I'm much happier for someone else to tell me when I need to be somewhere and just turn up and talk. <laughs> As I learned when I had to wrangle you and Joe Ford in the same trap one uh, a few months ago. <laughs> that, that was, a, yeah, that, no that was quite a learning experience. <laughs> <laughs> so, Cy, what book are you and I here to talk about today? Well, um, today we are here to talk about um, a Terence Dix adaptation of um, a season 13 classic story, Doctor Who and the Terror of the Loch Ness Monster. Ah, I see that you mashed up the two titles. It was, yeah. it was a story that had one title on television and a different story uh, for the book. Yes. Yeah, it's, um, is this one of the final ones that has its title change? Is there, I think there's just one more after this, isn't there? Because in the beginning, they all had their titles changed for the, fir for the first couple of years. Because, you know, you had your Spearhead from Space got renamed. You had your Silurians got renamed. You had your Colony in Space get renamed. And then for a long time... The titles matched. Uh, this book and the next book will have different titles. And then Frontier in Space, which is coming up in about two months on this show, is going to be retitled. And that's pretty much going to be it. 
yeah, I think um, Frontier in Space, or as it becomes the Space War, is the final final time, isn't it? Um, unless there's something that was changed minutely that I can't remember. That is, yeah, looking at my spreadsheet through book 45, yeah, that's the last one where the title mm-hmm. is drastically changed. Although changing Invasion of the Dinosaurs to Dinosaur Invasion is perhaps a very modest change. Yeah, but uh, I don't know. It it just kind of it's a bit snappier, isn't it? So a little bit. So which came first for you, watching Terror of the Zygons on television or reading Doctor Who and the Loch Ness monster? Oh, the Loch Ness monster by by several years. So um, this was a book that I borrowed extensively from my local library. So we had a gorgeous hardback cover with the big multicolored background um, that I used to pick up every few months and read again. So it was one that my mum read to me originally, and then one that I just picked up again and again through my childhood. Wow. So when did you finally get to see the story on television then? So I would have seen that um, Christmas 1988 when we got the BBC video release here. So it was sort of a good sort of seven or eight years sort of between reading the book first and seeing it on TV. And you probably read the book about a dozen times by then, right? Uh, probably, yes. <laughs> that wouldn't, yeah, it was quite, I, I certainly read it quite a few times through my childhood. So going in chronological order, what were your first impressions when you read the book? I mean, for example, what did you, was this a, a new... This is only the second Tom Baker novelization. So, were there any companions in the book who were new to you? Um, had you heard of the Zygons before? And most importantly, how did you picture the Loch Ness monster in your head compared to how we eventually saw it on, te- <laughs> on television? That's a really interesting question, um, and I have to think about this briefly. I'm so thinking about sort of the chronology. I was aware of the Zygons because there'd been a photo feature of. Um, sort of Doctor Who magazine or monthly as it was sort of in my early days used to do monster galleries so there'd be pictures of different monsters um, and so I'd seen pictures of Zygons in in action and there uh, there was a, quite a famous publicity still of all the Zygons touching Tom Baker and him sort of wincing so I was really I, I was quite aware of them and what they looked like Um I can't really remember what I thought the Loch Ness Monster looked like. In the UK, it's such a big phenomenon. And there there were a lot of books about the Loch Ness Monster and all the attempts to try and find it and sort of very fuzzy pictures that people had sort of either put together or or supposedly taken at Loch Ness. So it's one of those things that... um, any books about weird phenomenon in the UK you would do. And indeed there was an early target book about the mystery of the Loch Ness monster. So I wonder whether they'd changed the title sort of to tie in with their factual book about all the attempts to try and find it. So oh, get out. I, I didn't know that. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, well, you see, this is one of the things about growing up in the UK is that um, as a Doctor Who fan, when you're young and you're searching out books in secondhand bookshops, Eventually, your eyes become very attuned to spotting a Target logo at 20 paces um, when you see the spines. And then 
sort of get closer and say, oh no, it's that book about the Loch Ness Monster. It was quite a common, it was one of the sort of earliest target books. There are obviously quite a lot of copies of that one around. Or Terence Dix's Mounties series that was published by Target or something like that. And then be, have that disappointment that it wasn't a Doctor Who book. But now I think, I'm, I wish I'd sort of picked that up. I'd quite like to read that now. So, so um, yeah, so I'm I'm guessing I pictured it kind of like that. Not I'm the cover does does it quite good justice of for the model. It looks quite quite decent, sort of rendered um as a as a painting rather than the um smiley model that we get on TV. I love the bit on TV where it turns around to the monitor and almost looks like gives it a smile to brote on and then swims off again. Ah, yes, the little sock puppet. You know, I'm trying to Google now the Target Loch Ness Monster book. Unfortunately, now that Target is a major American retailer, that Google search term reveals every book ever written about Nessie that's on sale at (laughs) Target.com. But I can't seem to find the Target books with the distinctive bullseye logo about Mm -hmm. Nessie. I will try and track that down a little bit later in the broadcast. So, I come at I come at it the other way. I would have seen Terror of the Zygons first because I became a fan late November '84. My PBS cycled around from Peter Davison to Tom Baker, beginning of February '85, showing 25 minutes at night. So I would have gotten to Loch Ness Monster, or I should say Terror of the Zygons, probably end of February, beginning of March '85. This is only about two months after I started collecting the novelizations. So, I would have seen it on TV first. But I did have an experience similar to you, because I got the Android Invasion novelization before I saw it on television. And I was trying to imagine what the Kral voices would have sounded like. Yeah. And of course, mm-hmm. I, I was calling him Stigron rather than Stigron, because I didn't yeah, know Yeah, we all the... did that, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I had a lot of pronunciation errors, thanks to Doctor <laughs> Who over the years, reading some of the books first. But I had the crawl voice is all wrong in mm-hmm. my head. Now, the Zygons have very distinctive throaty whispers. When you're reading this as, as, a, as a younger kid, how did you picture the Zygons sounding? Um, again, uh, the the actual text of the book doesn't give us a lot of clues about how they talk. And I don't think Terence Dix makes it sort of very clear that they're quite softly spoken and quite sibilant. Um. So I, I'm thinking back. I'm trying to to, to remember that. I, I I guess when my mum read it, she always did a sort of generic monstery voice. So that would probably have been how I imagined it. I so yeah, I can't remember having a particular feeling, or if I did, it's been overwritten by watching the TV version so many times. It would be interesting to have fan recordings uh, of audiobooks of the Target books, the way that we saw them when we were younger, without the TV inf- without the TV story to influence us, for sure. Yeah, oh, definitely, because the uh, there there are some books where I came to the TV story afterwards and was really disappointed because it couldn't live up to the images I'd created in my head at all. I know Delta and the Bannerman was that way for me, and then eventually Battlefield, because both of those novelizations are very vivid, and I read them first. And then you get to these choppy, poorly made, cheap-looking, badly edited, rushed TV productions. 
Yeah, and it doesn't quite live up to to the cinematic version that lives in your head. Especially the Mark Platt version of Battlefield, which is chock full of literary allusions and has a scene featuring a future doctor with ginger hair. It just goes on and on and on. And then you get to uh, television, and half the story is Mordred laughing at the camera. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Nothing's going to quite live up to to that novelization. That's a, a very good, good adaptation. So you obviously didn't know what the Zygons were going to sound like. Then you had a very different picture of Nessie in your head, thanks to that other Target book, which I hope to be able to find online before we finish recording. What are some other early memories that you have of the book? Um, One of the things, um, and I think this is always a really important thing with the Target books, um, it's the cover. The cover is really evocative. So I, I have... Uh, a rather battered copy of the original version of the Target book, which apparently I bought for 35p somewhere, according to the, the inside page. Um, but the multicolored background on this one, sort of the tunnel effect and the black and white doctor with the with the Zygon and and um, the Scarison on it, that was a really oddly evocative cover. It, it really sort of grabbed your eye sort of if off the shelf. So it that was sort of really memorable, sort of seeing that all um, sort of on one of the hardback books as well. So those early hardback books are gorgeous. Um, so I think that was sort of always really attractive. Um, but again, I think this one—it's an interesting adaptation, and it again, Terence Dix makes all his all these adaptations rattle along. So it was a a nice easy read i remember as a child so it was one that i liked picking up and reading again and again yeah i know malcolm hulk when i was you know 11 or 12 was a little bit of a chore to read because he's so cynical and he uses language very differently than terence yes um i think i i i've said this before but it's um it's incredibly difficult to write simply so it's more difficult and Terence Dix writes in a very simple manner, but it's very beautiful prose in lots of lots of ways. And it's you can follow it. Deceptively simple. Yes, exactly. And then suddenly he'll throw in a word that you're not expecting at all. And it's, uh, I think there was, um, what stood out this time was gongerous, which was the, <laughs> which I was just thinking, well, I didn't see that coming, <laughs> and I'm I'm not sure I've ever seen that used in any other book ever. <laughs> I don't even remember that one. Uh, a little bit later in this broadcast, I'm going to be breaking down the, the text of Loch Ness Monster, and I'll be describing some of Terence's specific prose choices, but he's the perfect author to read aloud because he doesn't bog down and run on sentences, which, as we get to the target books of the late 80s, when you have one-time authors coming in to adapt a TV story from 20 years ago and have no idea how a sentence starts or stops, you definitely become nostalgic for Terence's ability to use words that are never longer than three syllables, but always paint a very easy and evocative picture that is a delight to read out loud, which I was doing a lot of to myself when I was a kid, especially with the Terence books. But something else that he's able to do is this is a slightly longer target book, I'm going to say, because the Pinnacle Edition is 140 pages, which 
I don't know what the target is because I don't have the target copy, but the pinnacle is at 140 pages. And it's not exactly, you know, it's not small print, but it's not large print either. I imagine this is probably one of Terrence's longer efforts by word count. So in terms of the target edition, how many pages is that? So um, looking at this, um, it's it's 127 pages. And the text isn't the smallest or the largest text that I've seen in, in a target book. So sort of midway there. So this is your pretty standard Terence Dix adaptation, I think, in 1976-77. So before it starts slipping a bit. Because the target books always started on page 7 for reasons that I'm sure are much more obvious to them than to me. So it's really 121 pages in the book. Yes. So the pinnacle book goes on for a good 20 pages longer. Uh, you were talking about your... You want to hold up the target cover again? Yeah, there we go. Lovely. So is that is that Chris Achilleos or is that it Peter is Brooks? A, yeah, it is a Chris Achilleos one, yes. All right, so he, he, he had done the first, like, 10 or 12, and then Peter Brooks came in for several, and now I guess yeah, Chris Achilles comes back. Yeah. So he, I think he, he came back with The the Three Doctors. So that's, yes. that's the previous book, isn't it, I think? That is right. Yeah, Mark from Trap One and I just discussed that in the last episode. Okay. So showing you my pinnacle, this is by that's David Mann. He's really an American biker. That's really great. Yeah, David Mann was a he was he was a biker culture artist, and this is he, I guess he was doing this on the side, but it's a very evocative photorealistic cover. So yes. you see that Nessie is kind of like a plesiosaur, but it has rows yes. of teeth and has evil eyes. The Zygon is a little rounder than we get on television. That is not John Woodnut, but it is still a pretty fierce looking monster yeah, with the suckers. Yeah, it's big eyes. That's really cool. But what draws my eye is deep in the background, you have the exploding oil rig with the smoke on the water and fire in the sky. That would be a very good song lyric, by the way. Mm-hmm. And then you have the Zygon ship blasting off uh, from the well, part of the cliffhanger. that's the whole plot in one picture. That's great. <laughs> and it doesn't have the Doctor or the famous Pinnacle Books unit spaceship on the cover, but there's a lot going on in this cover. Yeah, plus the that, castle. that's really dramatic, isn't it? And yeah, in Four Kill Castle as well. So, yeah. And then you have the bespoke pinnacle uh, oh, logo. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. <laughs> tinted in gold. And we have the back cover blurb, which goes, Born Again Zygons, <laughs> which is a very American way of putting it. Yeah. So what I was getting at the long way around is there is a deleted scene on television, which yeah. appears in the book, mm-hmm. which we didn't know about on television until the DVD came out. Do you recall what deleted scene that was? Yes, that's the um, the invisible TARDIS scene, isn't it? And the materialization, and just a little little chat between Sarah and Harry, which is really really nicely played on TV. Now that we've seen it, it wasn't played nicely on TV because I can remember seeing it on TV and missing that scene and missing the invisible TARDIS, which seemed such an important thing at the start of the book. So it's one of those things where. You're expecting something, and it's not there, and it, it feels a bit bit strange. Yes, because Terence, this book came out very shortly after the TV broadcast, because the TV broadcast would have been September. The book comes out the following January. Not even four months have gone by. I don't I don't know how much of a lead time Terence had because he was writing books before and after this one. He must have been on quite a treadmill pace. 
you have to assume he either wrote this as they were going out on television or maybe even slightly before. They're probably working from the scripts and some set photos rather than the, to the TV broadcast. So he's working from the script, and of course the script has that longer scene in it. And then a lot of the other dialogue is different. Yeah, Not noticeably so, but the, uh, the actors on TV will simplify the words a little bit for ease of delivery. Yeah, and uh, there were, were certain things that I I realized sort of reading this back. So I haven't read this book since I was a child. So like a lot of targets, I haven't come back to them. And this one hasn't been done as one of the talking books. So it's not one that I've really revisited. Um, so it's very interesting to see whether um, what the actors were bringing to the roles that Terence, who's working from the script and sort of very closely probably with the original script, doesn't bring out. So there's no none of um, the Duke of Forgill calling, getting Mr. Huckle's name wrong. There's uh, obviously a few few more jokes that um, sort of maybe were ad-libbed by some of the actors that don't make it. Like, always like, uh, like um, Landlord here's got second sight and then the um, bagpipes stop immediately. So, which doesn't oh, come yes, in. Oh, yes, yes. And you haven't got Sarah Jane answering the phone saying, hello, Fox in, and things like that. So I came away from from this novelization this time thinking, well, this is really interesting because there's obviously all these things that the actors brought in to the roles um, and maybe sort of worked on in rehearsals, not necessarily in the original script, that feel like they're missing now from this novelization, which is a very straight and sensible and um, quite serious version. And some of the sort of warmer moments on TV are missing from from this. When you're talking Tom Baker and Elizabeth Sladen, genius is perhaps too mild a word because the stuff they did to bring those scripts to life, and especially the way she thought about Sarah and the dimensions that she gave Sarah... In the books, for example, Terence wrote Sarah's first two books. So he wrote Giant Robot, and then he wrote Planet of the Spiders. He rewrites each of those TV stories to give Sarah a feint that she didn't have on television, because Liz Sladen wasn't going to stand for that sort of thing. So Liz Sladen has a lot more agency in the lines that she ad-libs for Sarah than you get on the raw transcript, which is what Terence is giving us with better prose. So yeah, when Sarah is being funny and is clowning around with Tom Baker or Ian Martyr, you sorely miss that in the book. And what takes the place in the book is the doctor thinking about how annoying Sarah is because she asks so many questions, which yes, that's a little that's a little more Terence than it is Elizabeth Sladen. Yeah, and and it's odd. Um the doctor also isn't as is far more serious in the novelization than he is on TV. And you don't get them there moments I remember from the TV show where you get sort of soft moments where the Doctor and Sarah are laughing at something together that you don't get mentioned and and things like that. So it feels a little bit colder, I think. And it's a very good action script and a very good action-packed book, but it lacks those more those character moments, those moments of warmth between the three main, well, the five main regulars, I suppose, we've got in this book. Yeah, this was the la- we didn't know it at the time, but this is the last Brigadier as the Brigadier story because this was made yeah. as part of the season twelve production block and got held over. 
And then season 13 will have two unit stories after Nicholas Courtney is no longer available. So you get Colonel Faraday and Major Beresford coming on later in season 13 in lines that should have been the Brigadiers, but this is it. This is Nicholas Courtney's curtain call until Modron Not Dead, which you and I talked about yeah, at the top go. of the It hour. always comes back to that. <laughs> Everything always ties up. So yeah, and, and it's interesting because obviously sometimes so I've been, in, in a book like The Web of Fear, for instance, Terence goes back and sort of deals with the Doctor meeting the Brigadier for the first time. And there's That's maybe right. a thought that if he'd known that um, Nicholas Courtney wasn't coming back after this, he might have done a sort of little tying up or a little little thing. But as it is, I mean, the Brigadier gets the last the last line and is the focus of the end of it. And sort of with him wondering where the Doctor and Sarah would end up and knowing that it wasn't likely that he would London. actually turn up in London, which was, was really lovely. So you sort of get sort of the um, the same sort of emphasis as the end of the, the TV story with the Brigadier just sort of smiling at the Duke's Duke's joke as he gets the, um, the, the close-up at the end. So you still sort of get a little coda to the Brigadier, which is quite nice. But it does give that last line a little bit of added poignancy because the Doctor's not going to see the Brigadier again until Maudrin, which is, you know, eight years in the future when the Brigadier's lost his memory and put on a little bit of weight, as have some of us during the pandemic. <clears throat> so, <laughs> but yeah, this book being written at about the time of the TV broadcast, Terrence couldn't possibly have known that. But what he does have to do is write out Ian Martyr, who left the series in a hurry as soon as his contract was up, and that obviously didn't want to come back to play such a underwritten role as Harry. So I was hoping to get a little more poignancy, to use that word again, out of Harry's departure, but unfortunately, Terence doesn't give us anything more. The Doctor doesn't even reflect he was going to miss Harry's exuberance or cheerfulness or bumblingness. None of that. No, it's as perfunctory as it is on TV with Harry saying, um, I'll stick to Intercity this time, Doctor, which is, is a lovely line and a very, very good. But it's, um, yeah, it's just a sad end, really. And then, obviously, he does come back for one more story, but he's really underutilized in that story. I know from the DVD production notes, Barry Letts, ordered a lot of that stuff cut out because he didn't want the focus to be on Harry, which yeah. of course is a mistake in retrospect because Ian Martyr only has about 10 years or so left after that. And we never see him on screen again. You would have wanted Harry to have a much more, you know, loud exit befitting his yeah. chemistry with Elizabeth Slayton. And he was, he was deprived of that. Yeah. But I mean, there are some tremendous scenes for Harry in this story, which is, is really good. So, and again, um, I think Terence does a good job of differentiating between the colder um, duplicate version of Harry than the warmer, nice Harry, our usual Harry. So when he's um, the the Zygon and lunging at Sarah with the pitchfork and the, Terence uses lots of words like cold and um, things like that to describe him and his his speech was flatter than normal and things like that. So you get a real sense of the character not being right in the way that Ian Martyr does does on TV as well to make his the two Harrys very different, which is good. And that's that's a brilliant way of using um, the novelization to tow the reader that something is wrong, which 
Sarah doesn't notice straight away, and so you sort of get caught up in this, and you know something is is wrong, and something's about something big is about to happen. Something bad is going to happen. Yes. Yeah, something very bad. Yes. <laughs> now. Terence, of course, is adapting the script. He doesn't know whose cast is who. So there are a couple of interesting cases in the early going of the supporting characters not matching what we'd see what we'd see on screen. So the actor who plays Huckle is playing a very stereotypical Canadian. Yes. Wearing the brightly colored flannel lumberjack shirt mm-hmm. and speaking in a very particular Canadian American patois. I didn't get any of that out of Huckle in the book was a much more generic character doesn't really factor into the plot doesn't even get the courtesy of a death scene just is sent home by the doctor and goes back to his base and doesn't even die off in a, in a way that has plot utility just vanishes from the story and then you yeah that's where you get a sort of sense of the perfunctoriness of the the character that he's fulfilled his usefulness in the plot and then is just sort of pushed to the side a bit goes home to live out his life, not aware of what's going on with the Zygons attacking the Energy yes. Conference. But the, I think it was Tony Sibold on TV, does manage to invest a lot of personality in Huckle, even though it's a very small role. I remember being disappointed when he's pushed out of the story, shoved away by Tom Baker and doesn't come back, because I thought the last two episodes could have used a little bit, of, a little bit of his local color. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I was going to talk also about Angus McRannald, the, the landlord, in the book, and I'm going to talk about this a little more when I break down the text, he describes the landlord as burly. Now, yeah. <laughs> there are many words that you can use to describe many actors. I mean, burly is one of those unique target book words. Anytime you see a sergeant in any military outfit, in any target book ever, they are always described as burly. Uh you could use many different words to describe Angus Leaney, whose most famous role, at least in the States, was playing a character called the Mole in The Great Escape. Yeah. Moles are many things, but Burley is never it. No. Ang- Diminutive, yeah. perhaps. Angus <laughs> Leaney is definitely not Burley. He's slight. <laughs> definitely. Mm-hmm. And again, he gives a very warm, funny performance. And he has a great scene with, with Sarah in, in, in part one where they're talking about you know, the second side and the doctor seeing around corners. And that scene gratifyingly does go on longer in the book because on TV, you know, Angus is not a major character. He's only in two parts before he is literally killed off. But he, we get more of him in the book at least, which is nice. Yeah, and that, that's good. Yeah, and again, there are, are moments that coming to it as an adult, I was expecting Terrence Dix to sort of expand upon because I thought, well, these are scenes that would... Sort of, um, sort of interest him and give give us a chance for some of the atmosphere. So I was sort of expecting maybe if he would make a bit more of the stories that um, uh, McGranald tells about um, the Jameson boys and all of those sort of local color stories about um, people being killed on the moor. And actually, that would have made a really interesting prologue to the book, perhaps, in the way that Terence Dix quite often did, where you tell this this sort of almost unrelated story to the main story, and it would be a really good good opening. So, but no. <laughs> Malcolm Hulk would always do that. Malcolm Hulk would yeah. always give you a disposable character and draw them as vividly as possible. And I'm thinking of Shuyi McPherson, who's coming up a couple yeah, of oh, books from yes, now. Yes, yes, which is a famous and brilliant one. 
And unfortunately, Shugi is nowhere to be found on television, even no. when they discovered part one, which was not aired for the longest time because it was only in black and white. There's no Shugi anywhere. So, you know, Terrence had done a very epic, lush prologue to Day of the Daleks. He had done a very lush prologue flashback to the Auton invasion. But yeah, and, and indeed to um, Planet of the Spiders, hadn't he, with, with Joe's adventure in the Amazon as well, So, which was two, back, two books back. So Cliff and Joseph. And, and I broadcast yeah. that episode the day before Stuart Bevan passed away, which was very mm-hmm. unfortunate. But what I love about Angus is that he talks about these tragic events that have happened in the village, and he talks about them as if they happened yesterday. Yeah, well, that oh, that's lovely, yeah. Oh, that was a wee no. while ago, he said. 1922, <laughs> right? And, yeah. and on TV, it's 1870 rather than uh-huh. the 1922. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, mean, I think that adds a, a bit of color in Terence's prose as well, which is, is good. Um, what I... I did find find interesting is that um, the Duke of Forgill um, in the book, um, although uh, you don't quite get some of the twinkliness that um, John Woodnut brings to the the role on TV, and so he's a much definitely a much colder, more austere character um, in the book than he is um, portrayed on 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 telly. Yes. Um, in fact, the whole cast of Zygon characters, because you have not only Broton uh, cosplaying as the Duke of Forgo, you also have the Caber, who's a very scary character. Yes. And then you have Sister Lamont, who is just mm-hmm. cold and mean, and it turns out it's because she's a Zygon. So you have the good guys, the unit crew, going off against the Zygons, playing as local villagers. How does Terrence in the book handle the distinction between these characters who are aliens playing as humans versus the actual humans who are released from captivity in part four and get to play themselves finally um i don't think it's quite i i, I hate to criticize terence six because I'm, I'm a big fan of his work but i don't think it's made quite as clear as it is on tv where the actors um change their performances when they're at playing sort of the human versions so you don't get a sense just through the prose alone in this book of the slightly inhuman, slightly cold and austere way that the characters appear when they're possessed by the Zygons. And um, you don't get a sense of the warmth that Sister Lamont suddenly has um, when she's normal Sister Lamont and the Duke of Forgill's twinkliness and bewilderment doesn't come across quite so well when you haven't got John Woodnut looking at Tom Baker and sort of playing off him. So the characters seem almost to a T all through, through this book flatter than they are on TV. And that's, that's fairly unusual. I mean, because this is a well, a very well regarded TV story, but everything feels just a slightly more generic in the book than the magic that was on TV. And I think that can be traced to two words. Not Terrence Dix, but Campfield Douglas. And those words are not necessarily in the right order. There's a really funny story on the DVD subtitles, the production notes. Douglas Campfield shows up to work. It's his first Doctor Who in several years. He picks up the script and goes, oh my god, 
and he just goes to the cast, do what you want. We're going to change all this dialogue. So he he and the cast made the dialogue a little more lived in, and as you say, the actors twinkle on screen in a way that they're not going to be able to do in the book, because Ter- Terrence is novelizing a script that the director didn't have a lot of respect for. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right, because as I'm sure we're, we're about to go on, to talk about the Zygons themselves as a, yes. an alien race. But on paper, they're incredibly generic because you haven't, Terence doesn't give us a lot about how they talk. And the description of them for a monster that is so brilliantly designed is kind of fudged almost. It's, um, it's not, um, sort of right up there, really. Hang on, my laptop is about to die. <laughs> oh, sure. We'll cut all this out from the recording. So, one of the things that really comes across in the novelization um, that um, is elevated in the TV story by design of the monster and um, the um, sound that they they make is the Zygons. They come across as very generic aliens um, in this book. There's nothing very distinctive about them apart from one thing, which we will come up to in a moment, I think. Um, But on the page, their dialogue is quite cliched because you haven't got John Woodnut delivering it beautifully and all the other Zygons. Um, there's sort of no differenti- differentiation that one of them is female and one of them is male, um, which again comes from the choice of actors and sort of the roles that they play um, sort of in, in the village with the bodies. So you get yes. the same actors playing, playing those. So you don't get that differentiation. And the... It's such a beautiful designed monster that you're expecting a brilliant piece of um, Terence Dick's description um, to sort of depict them with all their suckers and all of that and their sort of embryonic um, appearance. And you don't get any of that. And it's kind of disappointing. There is, at the beginning of Chapter 4, and I'll be talking about this later in the program, a squat, powerful figure about the size of a small man Orange-green in color, it had small, claw-like hands and feet. There was no neck. The big, high-domed head seemed to grow directly from the bulbous torso. The face was terrifyingly alien, with huge, malevolent green eyes and a small, puckered mouth. A row of protuberances ran down its back. The really horrible thing about the creature was that it seemed to be a parody of the human form. It It looked like a grotesque, evil baby. That's a pretty vivid description, but it's all in one paragraph. Okay, I probably skipped over that very because I read it quite quickly. So maybe I just ah. skipped over that a bit. But so you're right, and I am wrong. So sorry, Terence, you did describe them very nicely. Albeit, and as as he does, he manages to do a page worth of description in a single paragraph or sentence. Yes, and it's at, from your reading there. It's actually quite an evocative description of the monster. So just ignore me. <laughs> The word terrifyingly may be the longest word that Terrence ever uses. 
Yes, I yeah he um yeah uh, along with extraordinarily long scarf, which uh, I think yes. we get quite a lot. So yeah, those are, are two two big favorite Terrence Sticks words. But when he describes Tom Baker's outfit as bohemian, although he wasn't doing yes. that as early as that comes later on. This is one of the early. Yeah, books. yeah, we haven't got the vaguely bohemian look in this one. <laughs> Loose, comfortable clothing either. Yes. <laughs> Battered broad brimmed hat. <laughs> <laughs> What's a the good one too? Been, yeah, in, indelibly etched into my head. <laughs> Tangled mop of curly hair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about what you and I know now about the Zygons recording from 2022. Again, Robert Banks Stewart is tossing this off. It's his first script for Doctor Who. His second one for my money is a lot better, but that's a story for another day. He, he has the Zygons, and these are shape-shifting aliens who can assume human identities so well that nobody can tell them apart. This is an amazing concept, and Stephen Moffat, when he comes to the show, we'll say 40 years later, is going to take the Zygons and run with them. And as we're sitting here in the spring of 2022, there is a nether Zygon novelization about to come out. The Zygon invasion slash inversion is going to be part of the next tranche of Target books, probably coming out three or four months after this recording. And for those of you who are discovering this podcast late, the book is probably out already, and I hope it's, <laughs> I really hope that it's good. Stephen Moffat sits down, and he thinks about what it means to be a Zygon cosplaying as a human. So he will give us the dueling Osgoods, he will give us the Zygon, the Zygon Queen Elizabeth, so to speak, in Day of the Doctor, he is going to use the Zygons to their fullest potential. And their physical look is not going to change too much on television. They're going to still look very much like the Oscar-winning designer James Aitchison designed them as in 1975. But you get the sense that Robert Banks Stewart didn't realize what he had on his hands. And he didn't realize that someone like Moffat is going to come along and make the Zygons that much more compelling 40 years later. And if Terrence had adapted this book after he had watched what Moffat did with the Zygons on television, I think Terrence could have given us a lot more. He just didn't know because he's novelizing a script that's very, very recent. The ink is not even dry on the script when he's transcribing it. He didn't realize what the Zygons could be. And maybe we'll get that remedied when Peter Harness comes along in a few months and gives us the Zygon invasion. Yeah, because there's that whole... Sort of strand of the script that we don't really get about, um, which which the later Zygon stories sort of deal with with the who is the real one because the the body print, um, the bodies are, um, of the original ones are kept in the spaceship while the other one goes out. So you haven't got that whole uncanniness and that whole meet two people meeting, which again in 1975 was probably expediency on the scriptwriters point thinking about what was achievable in the doctor who studio at that time so i mean you do get some shots where you've got on tv where you've got the two characters sort of in the same shot together but not very often like barry letts was the same director who was able to have patrick trout wrestling with himself in episode six of enemy of the world so the will was there but this was the last story made of the season. Maybe the money was not there. Yeah, that's a possibility. And maybe it's just Robert Holmes thinking, oh, no, yeah, stay away from that, Robert. It's fine, Bob. We'll, we'll yeah, just do, do a, a monster story, but 
they can be human sometimes, keeps the cost down, makes it a bit easier on location. Uh, that's okay, but don't worry about the rest. We'll, yeah. People will love it anyway. This was not one of my favorite books growing up because I never had any particular emotional attachment to the TV story. And Terence's prose is remarkable, but when you're 11 years old, you don't realize how good you have at reading Terence Dix. No. Because all those later Target books with the massive run-on sentences that go on for days haven't been written yet. So I enjoy this book more now in my early to mid-40s, ha ha ha, than I did when I was uh, 11, 12, 13 years old. Which is it's a nice feeling to have when the book grows up with you and you can enjoy it more as a yeah. grown-up than you, did, than you did as a kid. But... Again, considering it's not my favorite TV story, and we've done a good job of talking about the flaws of the TV story, Terrence is able to fix some of them, but not as many as he might have done had he been given a little more distance and perspective. Instead, he's writing this at the same time the TV story is airing. There wasn't time for him to do the sort of full, whole-scale rethink that he would do. Even for The Three Doctors, coming out two years later, he rethinks that and he changes stuff around. He doesn't have time to do that here. No, and there are a couple of sort of notable moments, I think. Um, the Doctor having a moment of remorse after he blows the Zygon ship up is a is a good moment and a very Terence moment of him not, of the Doctor sort of thinking about the consequences of what he's done after he's done it because it's expedient in the plot to blow the Zygon ship up. He's got to get out of there. But it's just that moment where it sort of makes the Doctor a bit more sort of, almost um, aware of his morality and and things like that, which is interesting. And there's a really amazing Terence line. It's on page 138, which is the third to last page in the pinnacle. After the Doctor, destro- after the doctor destroys the command nodule for the Scarrison, Sarah looks at the waters and she thinks, soon the old stories would be true at last. There really would be a monster in Loch Ness. Yeah, and that, that feels almost like that should be the last line of the book. Rather than the perfunctory Harry leaving scene, yes. Yeah, exactly. So it, it really feels like that's a sort of evoc- nice evocative end to, to, the, to the story proper. And of course, later on, we're going to get Time Lash and another explanation for Nessie. I think I prefer <laughs> Terrence's to uh, what Glenn McCoy is going to give us <laughs> in another 10 years' time. <laughs> And there's one other big, massive difference between the script and the TV production, because yeah, yeah this book was based on a pre-ad-lib, pre-rehearsal script. Yeah, I think I, I know which bit you're about to say, mention, Jason. <laughs> Prime Minister Shirley Williams. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, yes. Yeah, it's a very definite um, yes, sir, that the Brigadier gives in this in this book, so... As opposed to Nicholas Courtney giving the script his wish fulfillment as to who he wanted for a female PM. Yeah, madam. As, as, as opposed to who we eventually uh, got, but that's a story for a different yeah. type of podcast altogether. But yeah, that was, was quite not- notable and noticeable coming to it after watching it on TV. So And coming to it after many convention anecdotes about Nicholas Courtney ad-libbing that and everyone sort of rolling around saying, ah, oh, there'll never be a female prime minister. So they were just showing this is the future. So yeah, that was a notable difference. So we've talked a lot about the regulars. We've talked about the villains. We've talked about the realization of Nessie as compared to the little television sock puppet. 
uh, just to go back a little bit to Douglas Canfield, this is one of his last stories. Terence is adapting the stage directions. He is not adapting Douglas Canfield's direction. But do you think that there's a clear difference between Terence's writing of the action sequences and how Dougie directs them? Or do you think these two guys are a draw because they're both equally good, one with the words, one with the pictures? Yeah, I, I'm, a lot of the action is really nicely described in here. It's not necessarily how um, working on the tension. So um, one of the some quite noticeable scenes, I think, on TV is the chase through the woods. Uh, yes. where, with the injured Sister Lamont and, and things like that. So Terence is very good at, at bringing the pace of those scenes onto the, the thing because his text is very good at the short sentences mean you're reading it fast and you're carried through all of the action very quickly. Um, but it hasn't got necessarily the style that Douglas Adams, um, Douglas Adams, Douglas Canfield brings <laughs> to those scenes. Douglas Adams would bring a completely different style to those scenes. But, uh, you know, Douglas Canfield <laughs> rings out the tension in those scenes, um, brings up the atmosphere. You've got the mist rolling through the trees. You've got, all of that sort of adding, it, it feels like it's a very a sort of early morning scene where they're out. It's not quite light, um, the, or the lights going at the end of the day. Um, that kind of feel, um, which Terence doesn't necessarily bring out. But on the plus side, I think the chase where the doc, the, the chase at the end of episode two, where the Doctor is being chased by the Scarison across the moor. Yes, Terence does that really really well and there's because there's not any real dialogue he's got sort of big chunks of text to describe the doctor running across the moor and ramping up the tension as the monster is chasing him and sort of those scenes i think were realized better than they could do on tv with your stop motion puppet coming after them and he narrates the Doctor's thought processes. The Doctor leaves the uh, Land Rover behind because maybe he'll make a smaller target on foot. Yes, things like that. So you can see a bit of what the Doctor's thinking. And so, and then you've got the, the idea of the nodule, um, the Saigon, um, what what's it called, thingy? Communi- uh, sort of the Scarrison Tracer thing, which... Uh, now has gone completely out of my head, but it's growing nodules because it's a living thing like the ship and it's attached itself to his arm and his wrist and he can't pull it off. It's not just sort of stuck on. It's You feel like it's a living thing through Terence's feet, which is really, really good. Okay, so we've talked quite a bit about this book and we both um, enjoyed it, although obviously it is clearly a different animal than the TV version because it has a better looking Loch Ness Monster, but it doesn't have the advantage of the ad-libs or Douglas Canfield's direction. Terence does the best he can with it, and of course Terence's uh, best is always um, one of the best things you'll read. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But during the time that we have left, I want to introduce you to a new feature that we have here at Doctor Who Literature, and I want to play with you a game of 20 questions. Right, Okay. I have used randomizer.net, and I have picked out one Doctor Who story title from the entire run of the show, 1963 through 2022. I have the title here. You don't know what it is. Using 20 questions, figure out, if you can, what is the random episode that has been selected for me? Okay. Right. Um, 
Does it have a number in the title? No, it does not have a number in the title. Right. That's one question. Question two. Does it feature Tom Baker's doctor? It does not feature Tom Baker's doctor. Question three. Well, this is a really tricky one. Does it feature a returning monster? Yes, it does feature a returning monster. Question four. Does it feature the Daleks? It does not feature the Daleks. Question five. Does it feature the Cybermen? It does not feature the Cybermen. Question six. (laughs) This could go on for a little while. Does it feature the Sontarans? It does not feature the Sontarans. Question seven. (laughs) Is it a new series story? It is not a new series story, no. Okay. Question eight. Now, Graham Burke, when he played this a couple of weeks ago, got it in eight. So, oh, uh, I failed. Oh. Your chance of tying him is running out, but you could still get it in less than 20. That's true. Let's, let's think. Um, okay. Um, so it's not, ah, is it an Ice Warrior story? No. Question nine. <laughs> Sorry. Well, Graham, you've won. There we go. Um, let me think. Question nine. <laughs> Um, right, okay. Um, is it the first story to feature this monster? No, because as you say, it's a returning monster. Oh, yeah, damn. <laughs> Question 10. <laughs> right, let's think about this. Is it a story from the 1980s? Yes. Question 11. You're halfway home. You're, you're, you're zeroing in, though. I feel, I feel you're going to win have, this. Yes. You're zeroing um, in. Did it ha- was it novelized by Terence Dix? Yes. Question 12. Is it Snake Dance? No. Question oh. 13. <laughs> I thought I was onto something there. Okay, question put. Sorry. You are, but it is not Snake Dance. Yeah, okay. This has got me puzzled now. I'm trying to think through, through all these well, things. Well, not to give you any hints, but you're talking about a returning monster in a 1980s stories, in a 1980s story novelized by Terrence Dick. So there aren't too many choices left. No, well, exactly. That's what I'm running through in my head now. Um, so, no, that's a villain. That's not a monster. Um, well, I'm u- using the terms interchangeably. Okay, so is it Ark of Infinity? Yes, it is Ark of Infinity. <laughs> yes, it is. You got it. I was it. very not- close with the last guess. So. You were you were white hot lava close. No, yeah. you're not not mm-hmm. not. Graham Berg did it very methodically, and he was just going yeah, through. Yeah, I, boom, I boom. was not thinking methodically enough at the start there. See, if you do it methodically, the game is ruined. You were doing it the right way, and you won. So, congratulations! Yeah, exactly. So that's a that's a triumph. I'll take that. <laughs> and Sai, as I said at the top of the hour, I have heard you on many podcasts recently. We've recorded several together. Where else can we hear you in the coming weeks and months? Um. Well. Let's think. Um, so obviously you can find me on Maximum Power, the Blake 7 podcast, which I am contractually obliged to mention. So that is, um, we're going through Blake 7 episode by episode. And um, we've just 
finished recording all the episodes for Series B, and now I just need to get on and edit the episodes of Series B so that everyone else can hear them. So um, halfway halfway through. Yep. So I've um, recently done a couple more hamster appearances with with the lovely Fraser and Joe, which have been been great fun. We are tackling a couple of very interesting Stephen Moffat adventures, which ah. um, which will be be fun to hear, I'm sure. So having Joe sent me a, a couple of clips to me and Fraser the other day just to remind us of what we'd done. So um, that was, yeah, they, they sound sounding very good and, as usual, very confrontational between the three of us, which is always fun to hear. So we come with lots of different opinions. So, oh, yes. um, And I will shortly be doing um, another episode of Trap One, looking at the Season 17 box set. Yes, I will not be on that one since the box sets come out quite a bit later in the States than they do in the UK, but I always look forward to your appearances on Trap One, and hopefully you and I will be teaming up on a Trap One very soon now. Yes, so um, I'm afraid, um, Season 17, you're being replaced by UK Jason. Well, any Jason is a good Jason. Yeah, there exactly. are several of us now in the uh, in, in our little podcast corner. There are three Jasons now, so maybe we'll do a three Jasons podcast. Yeah, mm-hmm. that would be interesting to hear. <laughs> All right, Cy, we're going to have you back real soon to discuss another Terrence Dix books in about five or six weeks. So looking forward to seeing you then. Thanks for joining yeah. me. Yeah, my pleasure, Jason. <laughs> Doctor Who and the Loch Ness Monster, written by Terrence Dix, televised as Terror of the Zygons, Teleplay by Robert Banks Stewart, televised in August-September 1975, and published in January 1976. Looking at the cover of the Loch Ness Monster novelization would be instructive, if I owned it. My copy of this is the U.S. Pinnacle reprint, lightly edited to reflect U.S. spelling and punctuation norms. The Pinnacle edition came out first in June 1979, about three and a half years after the Target release and I have what I believe to be the sixth printing with the bespoke Pinnacle Doctor Who logo in a nice shade of gold with the Harlan Ellison introduction inside. Pinnacle was churning these things out like Sontarans churn out Clone Warriors, a new printing every year, pretty much, so I assume the sixth printing came out in 1984. The Target edition bears the original Chris Achilleos cover. The Pinnacle cover is another work of beauty by American biker artist David Mann, and the Target version costs 60 pence, which represents a steep hike from the 40 pence cover price of the original 1974 Target books. Inflation on the rise. The table of contents promises us that Chapter 5 is called The Sleeping Village, which sounds like a Hammer Horror title. This is a long book compared to Terence's last two. The Pinnacle version is a full 140 pages, and the opening chapter is lush, with tons of vivid descriptions, character insights, and Terence's trademark observational humor. The opening paragraph is again Terence grabbing the reader, describing a doomed oil rig from the first sequence on TV. He tells us, quote, It was a calm, clear night, silent, except for the persistent sighing of a chill wind. Regrettably, the Scarrison fodder character in this chapter is the most stereotyped Scotsman on the side of groundskeeper Willie, with the words haggis and sassenach, and the phrase doesn't a can appearing in this first bit of dialogue, and I apologize for any American mispronunciation. 
Charmingly, the pinnacle version does not soften this up for the American reader. Spelling they'll change, dialect they will not. And there's nothing funny or stereotypical about Jock's death, with lines like, To his horror, he saw something huge, incredible, rushing through the water towards the rig. Or, he struck the water with an impact that knocked the breath from him, and the cold, dark sea closed over his head. Jock, we hardly knew ya. It's now 1976, and season 13, Tom Baker's second season, is still in swing. Terror of the Zygons was the season premiere, and this book must have been written contemporaneous to broadcast. It's our second Tom Baker novelization, ten months after the release of Doctor Who and the Giant Robot. Terence is still workshopping his description of the Fourth Doctor, who here is, quote, a very tall man, untidily dressed in a strange assortment of vaguely bohemian-looking garments. A long woolly scarf dangled round his neck, and a floppy hat was jammed on the back of a tangle of curly hair. No loose, comfortable clothing yet, but a broad, childlike grin spread over his face at the sight of the wild and unfriendly Scottish landscape. On TV, Tom Baker wore a Scottish-inflected outfit, but that is not carried over for the book. Harry is brawny, quote, like the hero of an old-fashioned adventure story. But his hair is no longer fair, as it was in Harry's previous book, The Giant Robot. Towards the climax, Harry will deliver the Doctor a, quote, exuberant thump, which causes the Doctor to wince. Sarah is, quote, slim and attractive, but that's it. This is from a deleted scene, by the way, which you can watch on the DVD, the one where the TARDIS becomes invisible. Zygons is the last proper Brigadier story, although a Brigadierless unit will appear twice more in Season 13. This story, of course, having been filmed as part of Season 12. Terrence includes a nice summation of Unit's mission, and their phasing out in the Philip Hinchcliffe era, which is helpful, as this is the first novelization of a Hinchcliffe era story. The Doctor, quote, hated being tied down to one place or time, and his habit of disappearing on prolonged trips around the galaxy was a constant source of aggravation to the Brigadier. Though, the Brigadier wears a kilt on the book, as on TV, and Terence has fun with that, too, describing the Brigadier's second thoughts about his decision to celebrate his return to the land of his ancestors, with a shrewd suspicion that he looked ridiculous, with the soldiers just a little too straight-faced whenever they glanced at him. Terence seems to enjoy writing for the Duke of Forgill, who serves as an antagonist for most of the story. The Duke has, in Terence's words, a kind of unconscious arrogance, and tells aristocratic jokes, end quote. Sarah observes that he and his family have ruled here for so long that they can't imagine things changing. Angus McRanald is described as burly, which you heard Simon and I talk about earlier. No. Angus is also pleasant enough and a little on the dour side, but an occasional twinkle in his eye showed that his grimness was mostly an act. Angus of the book tells a story from 1922, acting as if it occurred yesterday, though on TV the story was even further back, 1870. There's a lot of mist in the TV story, directed by Douglas Camfield, of course, and Terence leans into that, although he's writing this from a pre-Camfield draft, with the shooting of Harry at the end of Chapter 2 ending poetically, the sea mist swirling slowly round his motionless body. You can sense Terence trying to come to terms with this Sarah Jane Smith person. In her first two books, he wrote her as fainting, where she didn't faint on TV. Here in Chapter 3, he has the doctor speak for himself. 
presumably. The doctor sighed. Sarah's constant curiosity about anything and everything was one of her most engaging characteristics, but it could get a little wearying. He knew from experience it was no good trying to put her off. Only a clear, precise explanation would satisfy that inquiring journalistic mind. And then she faints at the end of chapter 3, at the part 1 cliffhanger. But at least that was a scripted. In the book, though, Sarah does not answer the phone at the end with a Scots accent, and Angus does not stop playing the bagpipes as soon as Sarah tells us that he has the second sight. Two funny moments, presumably added in rehearsal, that aren't in the original scripts that Terence is adapting. Let's give a listen. Hi. What's that? Uh, if you're interested, the brig's on the quayside watching wreckage being brought ashore. Hmm. Mm. Thought that'd interest you. He's being very secretive. If you ask me, he's wasting his time. Oh, yes, might as well forget about security in Tullock. Landlord here's got second sight. Do you know what he was playing? Flowers of the forest. A lament for the dead. <laughs> what is that thing you're fiddling with? It's part of a radio probe system used for checking localised jamming. Well, what if that gets jammed too? <laughs> Hello, Fox, in! Harry's been shot. How awesome is Liz Sladen, by the way? Terence has lots of fun describing the Zygon ship. He uses all his trademark adjectives. Peculiar, alien, strange. He says, as he will many times over the years, that it, quote, somehow seemed to have been grown rather than constructed, twice in this book's first four chapters alone, with other variants coming out of Sarah's POV in chapters 5 and 9, and even the Doctor's in chapter 10. Another common Terence line seen here is when, in chapter 3, Huckle gives a sigh of relief, without realizing that he'd been holding his breath in anticipation. In chapter 11, the character asks, Where am I? And is gently mocked as asking, quote, the classic question. A little less impressive is when Terence names the Zygons and Brotons in cutaway chapter 3 scenes, enclosed in parentheses in the middle of a larger scene, before we've been properly introduced to them for the first time. So when chapter 3 and part 1 ends with the line, It was the hand of a Zygon, at least we know who the Zygons are, but that's still giving the game away, somewhat earlier than we got their names on TV, to several scenes into part 2. Terence in chapter 4 also spoils the reveal that Sister Lamont, she was a Zygon all the time. Earlier in this broadcast, you heard me read aloud Terence's iconic description of the Zygon monsters to open chapter 4, i.e. TV's part 2. But Terence also gets into educate the kids mode by describing how decompression chambers work, and through Sarah's journalistic eyes. Presumably, he says, a decompression chamber was basically a sealed space where you could vary the air pressure. The doctor also helpfully frightens the kids by trying to remember human reaction to oxygen deprivation. Unconscious in two minutes, dead in under ten. Wasn't that it? Fortunately, he doesn't have to answer that question. Terence mocks the Zygons, too, via Harry's POV. Quote, 
Harry was struck by the note of colossal arrogance in the voice. Whatever these weird things were, they certainly thought a lot of themselves. He gives Harry a moment of sympathy for the stranded creature, too, before Broton reveals himself as just another ranting alien warlord. Broton does get a funny POV moment, annoyed that Harry fails to plead for mercy in Chapter 4, and again wondering in Chapter 5 why this primitive being failed to show the proper terrified reaction. In fact, these Terrence asides are probably some of the most vivid Harry Sullivan characterization we ever got. I adore Sarah's observation, when faced with the Zygon duplicate Harry in Chapter 6, that her Harry was the soul of old-fashioned chivalry, although I haven't covered Ian Martyr's two Harry novelizations yet, so stand by for further praise. Chapter 5 sees a unit character called Corporal Palmer, in a scene that's expanded from what appears on TV. The comedy scene where the Corporal says nothing but, Sir! The Corporal is nameless on the air, but Corporal Palmer was a proper character in the Terrence novelization released just before this one, Doctor Who and the Three Doctors, as we discussed in episode 17 two weeks ago. Played by a different actor than the Corporal in Zygons, that is, Palmer here gets a nice moment sighing at the Brigadier's redundant orders. They'd all be ready a lot sooner if the Brigadier would clear off and let them get on with it. This may be Terence's attempt at having a unit internal continuity by carrying the name Palmer over from one book to the next, but again, different characters on television. One thing interesting about the book is how much longer scenes go on than on TV. There's all sorts of extra dialogue, and not just from Corporal Palmer. Terence also plays around with literary transitions, such as in Chapter 5, moving from a doctor scene to a Zygon scene by noting Riley that the Doctor's good spirits were not shared by Broton, warlord of the Zygons, who we get in the very next scene. And while there's an improbable bit of dialogue in Chapter 6 where the Doctor seems to intimate that a surveillance camera is, quote, a technology of a very high order, the Brigadier gets to pronounce the slang term bug, quote, with distaste. That's Terence, always sticking in a character inside at the end of a line of vanilla dialogue, so subtly that you probably never noticed it was there. At least those folks who spent the 1990s complaining that Terence just transcribed the TV script without ever giving extra effort or elaboration. The Part 2 cliffhanger certainly benefits from Terence's ministrations. He narrates the Doctor's plan of attack for decoying the Scarrison. I won't read the whole thing, but I love this bit. Even if it did come after him, the Doctor wasn't too worried. He didn't have a very high opinion of monsters, however large and powerful. The bigger, the stupider, in his experience. Of course, within several tautly written and breathless paragraphs, we're at the Part 2 cliffhanger, and the Doctor's elaborate plan for decoying the Scarrison has completely fallen apart. Quote, The monster was almost upon him. And Broton gets some POV, too, watching the cliffhanger through the enormous cyborg's eyes. Broton felt as if he was the Scarrison, looking down from his mighty height at the puny figure of the Doctor. Although Broton in the book says kill him, where the TV version has the more satisfying line, destroy him. After the break, we'll discuss what Terrence does with chapters 7 through 12, which is the parts 3 and 4 material on television. <laughs> Very good, very good. Almost impressive. But why bother? 
It is necessary to activate a body print every few hours, otherwise the ritual pattern dies and cannot be used again. Ah. So you still have a use for the real duke? Of uh, one. Formal occasion? Uh, perhaps. I gather we've landed. Where are we? Uh, you like asking questions? Well, it's the only way to learn. When does this great operation begin, this conquest of the world? Phase one is already complete. Mm -hmm. And what are you going to do with it when you've got it? Is it a bit large for just about six of you? Other Zygons are on their way. When our planet was destroyed in a recent catastrophe, a great refugee fleet was assembled. Mm. And they're coming here at your invitation? Exactly, Doctor. It will be many centuries before the fleet arrives. In that time, the whole of this Earth must be restructured. I'll say one thing for you, Broton. You think big. Polar ice caps must go. The mean temperature raised several degrees. Thousands of lakes with the right mineral elements constructed. I shall recreate my own planet here on Earth. Using forced labor? That is my intention. Human labor and Zygon technology. The task is challenging, and not impossible. You're underestimating human beings, Broton. We shall see. Tomorrow, I demonstrate my ultimate power. Terence makes an unusual acknowledgement of the Doctor's physical limitations shortly after the resolution to the Part 2 cliffhanger. Even for the doctor, it had been a long, hard day, and he's described as trudging home, quote, rather wearily. This has a nice payoff in Chapter 8, where Terence sets the scene by pointing out that the doctor gets to awaken his unit pals, quote, with hearty shouts and loud bangs on the doors of their respective rooms. Terence also writes, through Sarah's eyes, that, quote, in the doctor's terms, a nice long sleep meant something like three or four hours. Indeed, it was something of a novelty for the doctor to bother with sleep at all, end quote. As this book is written in late 1975, regrettably, the phrase, sleep is for tortoises, had not yet entered the Doctor Who lexicon. Terence also fills us in on the Scottish menu, the same as he gave us a Tibetan menu back in Doctor Who and the Abominable Snowmen. They made a hasty breakfast of Angus's porridge. Sarah and the Brigadier scandalized him, the doctor, by demanding milk and sugar. The doctor, in true Highland fashion, ate his with just a sprinkle of salt, saying something about having acquired a taste for it during the Jacobite Rebellion. And that's Terence almost certainly drawing on his knowledge of the Troutnir for a little callback to the Highlanders. I love how, when Sarah narrates the scene, Forgo Castle is described, quote, like that place in Transylvania, where Frankenstein carried out his dreadful experiments and Count Dracula flitted round the battlements at sunset. Terence adds, Sarah was glad they'd come in the morning. She'd have hated to visit the place after dark. Although, um, Terence? Frankenstein didn't take place in Transylvania? Unless you count episode 3 of The Chase, which, unlike the Highlanders, was probably not a story in Terence's memory banks at the time. Terence tries to give us a little bit of flavor for the Zygon creatures, though it amounts to a little more than a data dump in the text as to why the Sister Lamont Zygon has to change forms in order to kill poor Angus McRanald. But Terence bounces back later in that scene, adding that the alien needed a few minutes of peace and quiet in order to assume a human form. Speaking of the death of Angus, there are some fascinating remnants of the original script not seen on TV, 
in the book's Part 3 material. Angus is killed off earlier, in Chapter 7, which removes him from intercut scenes in the long Forgill Castle sequence. In the book, that castle sequence is moved to Chapter 8 and is just one long scene with no intercutting. On TV, the Doctor doesn't go along with the Brigadier's suggestion to the Duke that explosives be deployed. But in the book, the Doctor does go along, and it falls back to Sarah to help us understand the Doctor's thinking. Sarah looked at the Doctor curiously. It was quite unlike him to go along so tamely with the Brigadier. He usually had some quite different, and of course far superior, plan of his own, since he was very much opposed to dealing with problems by blowing them up. She had often heard him expressing his scorn for the limitations of the military mind. Why was he being amenable? Sarah had a feeling that something was going on under the surface of the conversation between the doctor and the duke. It was as if they were fighting a kind of verbal duel. In chapter 9, Terence puts us right into the doctor's head, explaining that the doctor suspected the duke all along, and, quote, even agreed to let Sarah stay at the castle, feeling that he and the duke had reached a sort of unspoken truce. Now, after seeing the struck-down unit soldier and the murdered Angus, the doctor was having second thoughts. Perhaps the aliens were more savagely hostile than he had realized. Perhaps by being too clever, he had endangered Sarah's life. None of that is on TV. That's all Terence, and it's wonderful. In the book, Sarah uncovers the hidden Zygon spaceship entrance in the bookcase in the castle by flailing, which, hey, Liz Sladen does not flail. Funnier is Dick's writing a Robert Holmes line before Holmes invented it. Quote, For a moment, Sarah wrestled with her conscience, but it didn't put up much of a fight. We'll be seeing versions of that line again in Holmes' scripts from seasons 16 and 23. Also laugh-out-loud funny in Chapter 9 is the Brigadier's scandalized reaction that the Duke of Forgill could somehow be mixed up in the alien scheme. The Brigadier's, quote, conservative temperament boggled at the idea that a member of the aristocracy could be mixed up in shady doings. Though, of course, this is the same Brigadier who survived all those Malcolm Hulk stories in the Pertwee era, where the aristocracy did little else. In Chapter 11, Harry is wielding, quote, the latest thing in thermic lances. Also in Chapter 11, Benton hurriedly swallows a piece of chocolate before the Brigadier can enter the room. Unit does some electronics surveillance work for the Doctor, in the book only, from atop the post office tower. Though again, this is probably not Terence consciously calling back to the war machines, any more than he was flashing back to the chase earlier. At the Part 3 cliffhanger, end of Chapter 9, the Zygon spaceship is described as a vast, barnacle-encrusted crab shell. Uh, not quite on TV, it didn't. Terence does more interesting work with POV and foreshadowing. In Chapter 10, as Sarah and Harry unsuccessfully search Castle Forgill for some clue to the next step of Broton's schemes, Terence writes, She didn't realize it, but noticing the missing document case was the nearest she'd come yet to discovering the Zygon's plans. Broton himself is a mind that Terence enjoys slipping into, if only to mock. Check out this Chapter 10 POV scene. Broton stood brooding for a moment. Everything was going well. His plans were almost complete. Soon this entire planet would be his. Yet something was missing. He needed to tell someone of his cleverness, to overawe someone with the might of Zygon technology. There was only one suitable candidate, the Doctor. 
Broton decided to make one last attempt to bring his prisoner to a properly respectful frame of mind. The end of chapter 10 is a false cliffhanger, an extra narrative beat inserted by Terence to keep you turning those pages. The Doctor's plan to escape from his cell on the Zygon spaceship could result in his death with the slightest error in calculations, we're told. Or, as Broton says in chapter 11, I underestimated his intelligence, but he underestimated the power of organic crystallography. Another bit of Terence adding to the mythology of the Zygons is his explaining how their fear of fire is built deeply into their consciousness, as, quote, all Zygon ships are highly inflammable. Then the Doctor gets a very humanistic touch, as he regrets destroying that Zygon ship, quote, but it had been the only way to prevent the loss of still more human lives. The story's final, of many climaxes, the Loch Ness Monster's attack on Stanbridge House in Chapter 12, bears a couple of notable differences from the TV serial. There's the monster, first of all, with its rows of teeth, swimming up the Thames in parenthetical text. There are a couple of extra beats to the Doctor's fight with Broton in the cellar of Stanbridge House, and the Brigadier shooting Broton dead. When Sarah gasps that the Scarrison is huge, not on TV it wasn't, the Doctor in the book disparagingly replies, Oh, I've seen bigger. That line was cut from TV, presumably because Tom Baker had seen the prop first, and decided that he wasn't reciting that line no matter how much they were paying him. Earlier in this program, Cy Hart and I discussed the end of the novelization, and how Sarah gets in one last lament for the poor Scarrison, and how Harry's exit is as perfunctory as it was on TV. There's not one word of protest from the Doctor as Harry leaves, although Terence does add one line, which Cy and I neglected to mention, Getting into the TARDIS had involved him in a series of adventures he preferred not to think about. That's one way of explaining why Ian Martyr left the series. The problem with that line, though, is that some of those adventures were Robot, and the Ark in Space, and Genesis of the Daleks. You know what? Those are stories that I do prefer to think about. Lots. Next time, we jump forward a month in time, to February 1976, and Target will, for the first time since 1974, be releasing two books in the same month. A Malcolm Hulk script, remembered mostly for some too ambitious for the era special effects, and our first William Hartnell novelization in a decade since Doctor Who and the Crusaders came out in 1966. Join us, won't you, over the next two weeks, as we begin our two-part series on Doctor Who and the February of 1976. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. I'm Jason, your host and editor and producer. Special thanks to my special guest, Cy Hart. This podcast is brought to you by Anchor and can also be found on Spotify and Google Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, so that's DR Who Novels, and you can also find me on the Trap One podcast from time to time. I write about Doctor Who on Twitter using the hashtag Doctor Who Pilgrimage, that's DR Who Pilgrimage. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Next time we'll be discussing another novelization, and we'll again be joined by a very special guest. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep Turning the pages.